All right, cool. Welcome to the second episode of In the Weeds. We are a mental health conversation with and uh, for the service industry. Um, today, we are going to be discussing um, depression and service industry. We do have a, uh, a guest with us today, um, Ben Knorr. He um, does work in restaurant within here and within Oklahoma City. And uh, yeah, so Anna's going to kind of kick off the uh, conversation today, and I will let her take it. Well, good morning, everybody. Good um, morning. <clears throat> so, uh, Ben and I have known each other for a few years now, <laughs> uh, and uh, part of the reason I invited Ben today, uh, because first of all, he has been in the service industry uh, his entire adult life. Actually, before he was an adult, he began working in the service industry, so been at it more than a decade now. Um, so he's had ample experience with uh, not only his own mental health process, but also those of his coworkers. And so I thought he would have some of the best stories, best opinions. Um, he's really been thinking about this. We've had conversations sort of offline about this. And so um, in preparation for today, I actually started looking up some of the research about, you know, what is the prevalence? Uh, what are the rates of depression among those in the service industry? And what was fascinating was, first of all, I found that um, looking up research for depression by industry is actually profoundly an under-researched area, um, which I thought was pretty wild. Um, some of the most recent research um, draws from a cohort in Western Pennsylvania, and they got all of their data from one insurance uh, plan, basically. And so just really poor research. Um, and what they found was service industry wasn't even represented. Um, among that data. And I think the reason for that is pretty simple. People in the service industry tend to be uninsured or underinsured. Um, but um, in light of that, I thought, well, you know, we need to kind of start the conversation sort of anecdotally or locally among the people that we know well and that we work with. And so, um, Ben, I guess my question would be, if you had to guess how prevalent is depression specifically among the people you work with, among the people you have worked with, um, and more specifically too, what does it look like? What are some of the symptoms that you see, so to speak? I would say that you've got probably about a 50-50 shot that anybody you meet in the service industry is struggling with some form of depression. And it, it looks like a lot of different things. Um, there's what I would almost call like a, a mild depression where just the worries of a high stress, high intensity environment can kind of break people a little bit. Um, some people just tend to be a little bit more easily broken and I, and I would almost call that a little bit of a form of depression. But then I would say you've probably got almost a 70-40 shot of running into people who really struggle with the um, disassociation that comes with being kind of on stage for a majority of their lifetime. Um, we spend more time at work than we do outside of work a lot. Uh, and so you're constantly in front of people, you're constantly in front of your coworkers, in front of the public. And the, the way that we handle that a lot of times manifests itself in kind of removing our 
sense of personality and our um, our individuality, removing that from ourselves in a way, and that comes with a lot of problems. And one of them is a, a major a major depression that. Um, you say that you spend 40 or more a lot of us more hours a week not being yourself mm. yeah and mm-hmm. you asked what does it look like that's what it looks like mm-hmm. is removing the personality from your person almost mm. Mm-hmm. in such a way that you can continue to do your job even when people are upset with you, even when people are mad at you, even when the public mm-hmm. is consistently um, really trying to bring you down. And uh, then you go home, and that's where I think the real, that's I think what you're getting at is mm-hmm. the, the real depression. It doesn't happen at work a lot of times. Mm-hmm. It happens when we leave. Right. And we get so little time to leave sometimes, either physically or mentally, it can be difficult to leave work Mm -hmm. and it looks like struggling to figure out who you are Mm -hmm. as a person Mm -hmm. Um, it looks like sometimes um, having zero energy outside Mm -hmm. of work yeah Um, that's something I personally struggle with a lot is getting home and not wanting to do anything um, because you feel like you're leaving it all on the table at work. Um. Hmm. It's interesting you bring that up because one of the things that I did notice in the research, as limited as it was, was that those industries that require more of like a public-facing experience tend to lead to higher rates of depression. There really is something about having to split yourself and leave your kind of personhood to the side, make that less important and make the customer service element more important that I do think really leads to higher rates of depression. Well, and, and Ben, listening to your story, man, it, it sounds like too, that's, there's just a lot of stress and anxiety and fatigue that comes with that, that splitting, man, that compartmentalizing between and almost having, correct me if I'm wrong, man, put a, put a, aside who you are and how you're doing and how you're feeling and if you're hurting man i bet it's even twice as hard it is it is um and that's well if we're gonna bear it we're gonna bear it uh here we go so this this week in particular um i wasn't doing okay um and that manifests itself exactly how you're saying you're compartmentalizing and you're leaving you have to leave your mess somewhere um you can try and keep it in your head it will kill you Hmm. um and for me personally i have my bedroom currently if you walk into my bedroom it is a wreck Hmm. i hate that but that is what the inside of my head looks like. So mm-hmm. going to work where I have it compartmentalized, I have to have it compartmentalized, becomes an easy routine that gets easier. It, and 
I say that and I don't know that I can really speak for everyone, but I know that I can speak for a lot of us. You get to the point where you show up to work and some people have a little ritual to get themselves like in the groove. Other people just kind of, when they walk through the door, they're there. And everything else outside doesn't matter for a little while. That's great until you start using it as a coping mechanism. And I'm not gonna lie to you, I do that all the time. If my life is not going well, I work harder because it's easier to just clock in. And you I mean, that's kind of talking about compartmentalizing. That's exactly what we're doing. You shove everything else out the window. All that matters is right here, right now. And it sounds like too, man, it's there probably that feeling is there or that it's reinforced that it's not okay to have a bad day, that you got to show up and you got to perform. And yep. that's got to be tough too, man. Just this idea of it's not okay to not be okay. You know, sorry for the double negative, but and I mean you're not wrong. Um, you're lucky sometimes to find a group of people to work with that do try and take care of each other. Um, I'm very fortunate right now. Shout out to Burger Punk um, that. I have a good group of people that work around me. Um, and we don't all have good days all the time and we try and take care of each other. But yes, that is really there uh, across the service industry, especially in restaurants and retail too. That's another one. I've only worked retail for a, a short amount of time, but those guys, you are not allowed to have a bad day. You are constantly in front of the public. If you are having a bad day, that means your eyes are puffy or you're teary eyed or you're slouching or not smiling and you're not allowed to have that you have to keep pushing through it's and i think that's very hard for a lot of people and the people who are good at it are either very strong mentally or they're really broken it's funny because it almost like the the ones who who are really good at it they they you get to be in leadership, you know what I mean? And so then, and so the, because it's like, you're the ones who can like show up on time, you know what I mean? Like you can hit all the things, but then like, but you're just functioning at a higher level of brutality. You know what I mean? Or like, it's, it, it's kind of a dark like circle, you know? I think it can be. And to kind of bring it back around to the, the idea of depression in the, in the industry, I think that in and of itself, that point right there, that the better that you are, you move up, and it just becomes harder, really doesn't help the situation because all you're doing at that point is learning to disassociate more and you're putting more and more of yourself into your job. And some people can do that well. And I've worked with people who really enjoy it and so I wouldn't call it a problem for them. But I've also worked with people who are just that type of person. They're going to pour everything they've got into their job, and they're not going to give their personal lives anything. Mm -hmm. And that is a real danger for me uh, personally, is just, oh, I know I work hard. I know I work hard. And they give you a little bit more responsibility. Mm -hmm. Oh, I work hard. And they give you a little bit more responsibility. Oh, I work hard you take a little bit of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, you're, I clocked out yesterday with 55, 60 hours. Mm -hmm. Before you know it, you're clocking out with 80, 90, 100. Mm -hmm. 
you can't continue to do that without having some sort of mental lashback. Right. Right. Well, I just, I get this, this picture in my head of as someone's kind of ascending the mountain, you know, kind of, kind of climbing up the risk of losing yourself and your happiness, lack of better terms, your sanity kind of goes up as well is what it sounds like. And maybe it doesn't happen to everyone, but no, it doesn't. I, and getting prepared to talk to you guys about this is kind of difficult because not everybody has the same experience Mm -hmm. in the industry. Um, So I actually, I feel like it's a very service industry thing to say because we do see so many different people having, it's like we never associate ourselves as like the ones who are like depressed. You know what I mean? It's like, well, (laughs) you kind of like skirt it. You're like, well, yeah, like this is tough, but like this guy's got a way harder. (laughs) You know? (laughs) The the, the classic coping mechanism. It's a classic coping mechanism. That comparative suffering, like, "Eh, is it that bad? Nah. Comparative suffering. Right. Is that a real thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so okay. T- talked about. Yeah, yeah. Talk to like, me about uh, that because this, this is, that. He's, he's he's not wrong. That's a big thing. We often, sorry, oftentimes, oh, that guy's got it worse. Like, yeah, oh, and yeah. then you just suck it up because that guy's got it worse. Right. So it's like, well, they're in rehab, and I'm just like, I'm kind of high functioning right. addict here. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. So right. I don't know. Like David was saying, it's it's classic coping because mm-hmm. if you kind of step back and look at that concept and think about it. What good does that do to anybody to compare your suffering to somebody else's? Mm-hmm. All that really leads to is essentially a a putting, I guess, putting down your own experience and and or like putting aside the the necessary coping, like the the good things you could do to manage your own experience. All you're doing is saying like, well, I should suck it up because that person has it worse. And how often in that moment do you actually go and you know do something useful for that other person? Very, very rarely. You're just like kind of using that as a way to kind of beat yourself into greater performance, more productivity. Yeah, and, and to keep you a part of the group because we have this thing called uh, in our brains in our in our cave person brain the social self preservation to where man it's it's threatening and it's stressful to think that we're not part of the group. Getting voted off the island as a, to use an old school metaphor. Is, is scary to us. So we'll go into like fight or flight and we'll rationalize to just be a part of the group. Someone else has got it worse. I can't, I got to put on, you know, my big girl pants or man up because I can't let anyone else in the group see me hurting because they'll shame me mm-hmm. or, I'll, or I'll feel shame. I'll feel guilt and I'll be booted off. So right. we do what we can to try to just show that we're tough, we're strong because mm-hmm. we don't want anyone in the group seeing a chink in our armor. So that's part of it too is we're, yeah, we're, we're just trying to maintain our social status. And, and, and I'm guessing in the service industry too, when there's, it, 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 you were talking about intensity and fast pace and money and, and customer service, I'm sure that pressure's really there to really perform in, in, in front of your peers. The, the pressure comes from both your peers and your bosses, but uh, I would say it more comes from the public. Mm. Um, especially, I'm, I work in kitchens. I didn't like working directly with the public I tried um, but they're mean so uh, <laughs> it's true it, it's very true uh, but for I was talking to one of the servers that I work with the other day and he was talking about how you know the pressure to continue to perform no matter what is happening we were we got real busy and he had a lot of customers that he was waiting on at the same time and he comes back, 
<laughs> he comes back into the kitchen and he was obviously upset because somebody had been mean to him. But he has to turn around. He has to come into the kitchen, shed a tear, turn around, and go back out with a smile on. That pressure, I think, is the greatest pressure that we really face. Because, yes, to your bosses, a lot of times you're just a number. But you that's handleable, right? A lot of people's bosses view them as a number. Do I like that about society? No, but that's for another time. But the pressure <laughs> from the public coming in, I think, is, is something that doesn't get enough love because people don't want to see that about themselves. They don't want to look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm part of that. Like, I go out to eat. And whether you think that you're being a, a mean person or not, oftentimes you're being inconsiderate of the fact that you're not paying attention to what everything else, to everything else that's going on. You walk into a busy restaurant and you get sat with a server who obviously is overwhelmed. A lot of times we expect the same level of service no matter what is going on in their world. Coming from someone who's done this for almost 10 years, every time I walk into a restaurant and get sat, the first thing I do is look at the server and their section because that will tell you way more about what service you're about to get than anything else. And like I was saying about the server the other day, he came back in the kitchen obviously upset and he's got to turn around and put a smile on. He's not always going to be able to do that. And then when he fails, the customer is going to be upset, which is going to push him further. And he's going to come back into the kitchen the next time and he's actually going to be crying this time. And then he's going to have to turn around and try and put that face on again. And he's going to go back out and he's going to fail again because he just can't keep doing it. And those customers are going to get worse and worse and worse because he is going to be failing harder and harder and harder. Then he's got to go home with that, with probably not having made as much money as he should have because that one customer at the beginning of the night really just tipped the scales against him. And so all night he wasn't making as much money. He was not having a good time. And I would guess that the other servers that are working with him that night are not super happy with him because he was failing. And I wouldn't necessarily call it his fault, though it is his fault to everybody's eyes, including his. And then he's got to go home with that. and He's got to live with that. Oh, today I, I failed. <sighs> Man, if you ain't got nobody to pick you up, you're down. And you're down for, I mean, all night. We talk about depression. Depression, I think that one of the bigger problems with depression in the industry is not always the depression itself. It's what it leads to. Yes, <clears throat> I totally agree with that. That's actually something I was thinking about as I was looking at this research was that you know, more and more people are saying like, yeah, for millennials, for Gen Z, mental health concerns are going to be a serious thing that employers need to take into consideration. Um, people are gonna take more sick days for mental health than they are for actual physical health is some of the research coming out. But the issue is a lot of these um, studies that I was looking at, you know, they weren't taking into account the fact that some of these millennials and Gen Z don't have the safety net. 
you know, if you take a bunch of sick days uh, because your mental health isn't great, um, because you have depression, and you work in the service industry, you've lost your job. And a lot of people in the service industry don't necessarily have the like family means or kind of other backup that they need to help them weather that kind of turnaround. So there really is, I think, this like social kind of lack for people in the service industry in that way. I don't know. Is that what you all have seen? I, I agree with that. A lot of the uh, a lot of us live paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. and so you know, and almost none of us are on salary. So if you take time off, you don't get paid. Mm-hmm. You don't get paid. You don't make rent. Right. And that is a big stressor for a lot of people. P- yeah, P- PTO definitely does not exist, and it, it does seem to compound really quick when you're, yeah, like just everything we've been talking about, it kind of comes into this space where you're just kind of like a numb, you know what I mean? Like just like mumbling along. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, me and my kitchen manager uh, have been talking about it. We call it autopilot. Hmm. Um, you get into this headspace where you're just functioning. Um, without really, I would say, comprehending a whole lot. You're going through the motions, and you you do it long enough, you get to a position where you can do that, and you never have to wake up. Mm-hmm. She uh, she was saying to me, she's leaving uh, our job uh, to move, and she was saying to me the other day, um, that she'd been on autopilot since she started working in the service industry. Mm. And I started to think about that because wow. that was pretty profound to me. And I realized that I'd kind of been the same way. Wow. You know, I clocked into a restaurant nine and a half years ago. Yeah. And yeah. I don't think that I really ever clocked out. Right. And I don't even, <laughs> I don't even really want to know all the things that that has done to my head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And there's this weird narrative too, because like we're not living these like really lavish lifestyles, you know. So so there's this like overarching. It's like, well, you should have went to college, or well, you should have sure. done this. You should have made better life decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, some of us like being here, right? You know what I mean? Like I, right. I, I like for the most part, like I, if I wasn't doing hair, I would be in restaurant, you know. Well, and, and and that's the funny thing because I was telling my roommate the other day, I was like, I really enjoy what I do. Mm-hmm. I love to cook. Yeah. It is one of the things that makes me happy. Putting a smile on somebody else's face because I made them food yep. is immensely satisfying. Yep. But at what cost? Like, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, and I think it goes with, Anna, you were talking about the social piece, you know, and the research. I love mm-hmm. that. Um, there's some interesting theories that's been, and research that's been thrown around about polyvagal theory and how uh, depression yeah. mm-hmm. actually is a former adaptation. Mm hmm. You know, and hear me out. I know. I mean, I've had major depression as well, so I've been there. And to hear that is a little striking at first, but mm-hmm. it's that depression in and of itself is a form of adaptation. Like our body responds to threat, and if it's constant, our body just mm-hmm. kind of puts us in this immobilized state to try to protect us. Because you know, depression will just suck the life out of you and suck mm-hmm. the motivation. And it's like that freeze. You know, they talk about fight or flight, but there's also freeze. So it's kind of a, that immobilizing mm-hmm. state. And the problem is, though, socially, our society has created this, this shame 
in, in sense of guilt around depression and snap out of it and get out of it like it's a bad thing when really it takes a lot of courage in 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 you know just muster to survive depression and that dissociation you're talking about it's it's kind of a way to adapt our bodies are reacting and then our brains are trying to make sense of it but then society mm-hmm. judges us for it and right. they say one of the best ways to get out of depression is to mobilize socially mm-hmm. social man mm-hmm. the most protective thing we got in this world right. is other people and right. social supports but then right. the sense of shame that's been built around depression, you don't want to do that. Exactly. You don't want to reach out to mm-hmm. other people because we're going to be so shamed. So I'd say, Ben, what you were talking about and Anna, depression, it's a part of the human condition. We've all got it, but we have stigmatized it and made right. it into this bad thing and horrible thing mm-hmm. that's really hard to get out of because we just don't mm-hmm. understand it mm-hmm. as a society. Right, because we short circuit these conversations with yep. people about like, this is how to deal with what we have found with major depression to be a recurrent issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the recurrence rate, the number of times that you're gonna have what we call a major depressive episode, very rarely is that just once. You're gonna have it multiple times. Um, yeah. And so we stay in that state right. of immobilization. Mm-hmm. And we, 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 mm-hmm. we can't kick out of it or get out right. of it because mm-hmm. again, we don't, we don't turn to those supports because Right. Yeah, we're for the, the social. We're afraid, and, and and we never learn what can actually help us. So we just cope in this kind of like best way that we know how. And sometimes we're that blind squirrel that finds a nut, and we kind of stumble across the right way to sort of manage our own particular experience of depression. But I find that more often than not, we just kind of go to what's comfortable, whether that's substances or you know some sort of overwork or you know fill in the blank. Um, unhealthy relationships that give us that high, just like oh, a substance yeah. does. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Experiential avoidance. Mm-hmm. We'll do what we can. <laughs> feels great <laughs> in the moment. Absolutely. It feels great in the moment. It's like we, we, we pay for our emotions on a credit card. You know? <laughs> exactly. You, you, get that, you get what you want up front, but you're going to pay that shit back with interest. With mm-hmm. interest, yeah. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You ever tried drugs? Because that's what it is. <laughs> yep. yep. Mm-hmm. So I have a question then. I'm talking about not using the right coping mechanisms um, or using coping mechanisms in general. Mm-hmm. As licensed professionals, what is the best advice to... I would First of all, we'll say this. What is the best advice when you see somebody else, you know, dealing with yourself I think is probably harder than dealing with somebody else so every we, time right. yes, yes. Amen. Yeah. so <laughs> that's dealing... one thing I know as a professional yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always say we we, we 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 treat other people so much better than ourselves we wouldn't yeah. dare treat other people the way we treat yeah. ourselves if you can't really do oh, teach like, dear goodness no yeah. <laughs> if I t- if I had treated people like I treat myself yeah. nobody ever would talk to me yeah. uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I'd be divorced and unemployed <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> um but so when you see somebody else going through what is obviously a depressive episode, and no, no matter what form that takes, because it takes a lot of, a lot of different forms, um, is there general knowledge that would help people help others? Because I think that's one of the biggest things in the service industry is talking about like the collective, like it brings, you know, depression will bring people together, right? But it brings us together. We're already now the same team. 
well, what happens when one of us starts helping other people, right? Hopefully we might be able to help each other in a circle. So how, as someone who is um, in a position to ask the questions, how do you start being that person? How do you start being the person who helps? And what does that look like, you know, for different types of depression? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say step one, destigmatize in your workplace. First step, make mental health a part of the conversation for yourself and your coworkers. And often I find one of the things, even as a therapist, that can sometimes be useful is to say like, hey, we've all got this. I've been through this too. You know, you are not alone in this. You are not some sort of weirdo for feeling this way. You're not the weak one. You are one of a cohort, all of us experiencing some version or brand of this particular issue. Um, so I would say that's kind of the first place to go um, is to destigmatize, start the conversation uh, with the people you work with. Yeah, and I, I love this thing called mental health first aid, and I teach it. And it's actually an acronym. It's a really corny acronym, but it works really well. It's ALGE, A-L-G-E-E. So in a lot of the skills Anna's talking about, first of all, assess if the person's safe because, you know, we see with depression especially that, man, again, it can suck the motivation out of you. It can suck the life out of you. And we can have, start to have some really dark thoughts. We can have thoughts about hurting ourselves, whether that's non-suicidal self-injury or suicide, which I say does not mean we're crazy, messed up, screwed up, effed up. It means that we're really hurting. We're mm-hmm. just re- Suicide is a coping mechanism in and of itself. And so we need to assess, is, is this safe? Is this person safe? And then just listen, like Anna was taught. Listen empathetically. Give our own stories to, to normalize it, to universalize it. Uh, give reassurance. And then also know that, you know, sometimes the best thing we can do with folks is triage. Mm-hmm. Like, help them get help. You know, I can't tell you how many times I was working at the university. Folks would bring their friends to my office, you know, just supporting them and, and, and showing that therapy's okay, counseling's okay, you're not messed up or crazy, you're just, again, you're, you've reached your ability to cope. And so, just to add on, and I was saying some really mm-hmm. good stuff to add on to that, is just sometimes it's knowing that we're not, it's not all on our shoulders to fix. That's that's why, you know, right. I have the student loans that I do, I don't know if Anna has to say, but <laughs> that's why we go through all the school oh. and get the license and stuff, is because we're here, there's trained professionals that can help with that stuff and just, but I tell people, don't just say, hey, go call a counselor, you know, help them right. find that counselor. Take exactly. them to that counselor. Exactly. And, and go that extra mile, too, to kind of, again, if, if we believe that this is a kind of social disorder that's meant to be treated socially, create that sort of team mentality in whatever aspect of the service industry you're in. So if you know that one person in particular is having a very tough time, you know, do what you need to do to support whether that means giving them a day off, whether that means checking in with them on their days off, doing those things to kind of go the extra mile um, as a community, I think is really vital. And, and so Ben too, I'll say, man, probably, and I go back to the research shows, the most protective thing out there, the thing that helps people get better, feel better, and maintain is, is social supports, just mm-hmm. being there for people. Right. You know, Where depression and, kills is in isolation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we feel lonely. We feel messed up. We feel mm-hmm. like we have to be happy, and so we're even less happy. You know, that, that happy. I love the happiness myths. And, you know, just that idea that happiness is a natural state, and it is not. And right. so, it is a decision. 
yeah. a lot of times. And, and, and sometimes it's just riding the wave, too, of just, like, depression and sadness is a part of the human condition. And sometimes it's riding the wave. You know, I, I've been so, like, physically sick and, and so depressed sometimes. I feel like, man, it's never going to get better. But I love the, the metaphor that our, our feelings are like the seasons. It's going to get warmer outside. We're about to have that this week, actually. <laughs> it's going to get warmer. Sometimes it's just riding that wave. Mm-hmm. And if you've got someone in the boat with you, it's just just helping you reassure, holding your hand. It's easier to ride those waves. And I'm not saying it's all up to other people. But what I'm saying mm-hmm. is just having that support network. And that's why it's so important, too, that, Ben, like you were talking about, if we see somebody hurting, approaching them, you know, asking them the questions. Uh, I hear, like, people say, well, if I ask them if they're depressed, it's going to make them depressed. Or if I ask them if they're having thoughts of suicide, that's going to make them want to do it. No, the research nope. shows it actually helps. Mm-hmm. People are like, I'm glad someone asked me I was depressed. I'm glad somebody asked me if I was having thoughts of hurting myself. Mm-hmm. Because, again, the shame that comes with depression, people just, they don't, they don't want to, mm-hmm. they don't want to reach out. And I don't blame them either, because like I said, there's not a lot of rewards sometimes for reaching out. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And I think the, one of the biggest things is you ask somebody who is depressed and who, you know, having been someone who's considered and attempted suicide a couple times in my life it it can be very difficult to have somebody approach you about that and then to be honest with them because of the stigma to say Mm -hmm. oh yeah yesterday I took half a bottle of Vicodin right being open about that (laughs) right who wants to say that like (laughs) yeah yeah I just said that that happened years ago and I'm only just now becoming okay with saying, yeah, that happened. Mm-hmm. If you would ask me back then, I would I would have been like, yeah, no, I'm fine. Give right. me another beer. Mm-hmm. We'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. You know? And, but. <sighs> yeah, you've got to. I, I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in my training to be a therapist was from a psychiatrist, actually, who, I mean, this woman took no shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I basically, I said to her, you know, how do I ask this question in a way that's likely to destigmatize the stuff around suicide and self-harm? How do I ask someone if they're thinking that? And she said, very simple. Just say, you know what? When you're feeling that level of despair, it's incredibly common to consider hurting yourself. It's so normal. Is that something you've ever considered? Or have you ever tried? And in that moment, I was just like, yeah, just make it seem normal. And that this is what we do instead of, you know, making it seem like this is the untouchable subject, you know? Well, and and I'll add to that too. I'll tell people before I ask, I'll say, look, I don't think there's an adult walking this earth that Mm -hmm. hasn't had those thoughts. Right. And if Mm -hmm. if they say no, then they're lying. (laughs) But it's it's a part of the human condition. It's just a part of, and Mm -hmm. again, and I'll tell people, I don't think it's because you're crazy, messed up, screwed up, or fucked up. It's because you know, we're hurting into mm-hmm. the human brain, emotional pain, depression hits the brain like physical pain. To your brain, it's all the same. It's just, mm-hmm. in fact, it's probably even worse sometimes according to research. And so I'll tell them, look. Oh, I'll, if, take my, I'll take yeah. my burns over my depression any day. There mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. yeah, man. So it, it hurts and it's rude, but you can't see it. And so I'll mm-hmm. tell people, look, if we're having thoughts of hurting ourselves, first of all, every human being that's an adult has had that. Either that or they just lived in a coma, you know, the yeah. matrix or whatever. Um, <laughs> And that's because they're trying to avoid stuff anyway. So there you go. (laughs) Um, And so it's, you're not crazy or messed up. You're hurting. You're in a really dark place. And I would just love to try to understand. 
I would just, I would try to, I love, and it, it, it's our reaction is important too. Cause man, yeah, if you tell your story, if I tell my story and someone reacts in a certain way, then yeah, I'm going to shut down. And the problem is we're not taught how to listen to people's stories. We're not taught how to react, you know, we're, and so I think that's part of it too. The onus is going to be on us. If we're asking, we need to be prepared to listen yes. empathetically and not mm-hmm. fix, mm-hmm. <laughs> but just, exactly. let's just sit with somebody, man, sit with them in their pain and then right. help them get help, you know? I'll tell you, if someone tells me they're having thoughts of hurting themselves, we might spend the entire session of me more or less listening than trying to just mm-hmm. poke and fix. Right. I remember I'd, I'd have people call me to their office and say, Dave, we need you to hospitalize somebody, you know, <laughs> when I was working at Red Rock. An mm-hmm. hour later, we're walking out with a safety plan and they're going home. You know, right. people need to be listened to. In, in, in exactly. Because that's very scary for people. And that's where part of that mental health first aid that I, treat, that I teach is also learning how to respond to people in a loving, mm-hmm. empathetic, compassionate way. Mm-hmm. and not in a judgmental fix me way right because would, that's about us right that makes us feel better yeah, exactly yeah. W- would you want to unpack that you said algae yeah uh, i could like it kind of like what are those you know yeah. what i mean and and, and then that might be good for for the listeners to like so some kind of you know so some good, good tools in the tool belt you absolutely know? so the first step a is is assess assess for safety asking the if, if we get the sense and i tell people if you have to ask yourself the question you probably already know the answer if i have to ask is this person having thoughts of hurting themselves i should probably ask it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i love the saying of it's not how you ask I mean it is how you ask it but it's more important if you ask it mm-hmm. and if you're fumbling your way through it Anna that, that, that was wonderful what you mentioned I've got my way of saying it as long as it's genuine don't ask like hey you're not having thoughts of hurting yourself are you right. you're setting them up to <laughs> fail man <laughs> yeah. you know again and like that, that's about us there that is about our discomfort oh, please don't tell me you want to hurt yourself please don't yeah. say anything please yeah. don't say <laughs> but just finding your way to say man are you having thoughts and, and normalizing and universalizing so assess for safety and if it's safe then listen empathetically you know, don't try and fix. There's a great video called It's Not About the Nail. I don't know if you've seen it, Anna. Yes. It's a two-minute video where someone's got a nail in their head and their partner's talking to them. And they're talking about, ah, I've got headaches. I said, get the damn nail out of your head. And they're like, it's not about the nail. The person just wanted to be heard. It's on right. YouTube for anyone interested. Mm. It's it's a great, great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just, just listening to them and then reassuring them, that, which is kind of the next one is G, give reassurance. So L is listening, but listening empathetically and compassionately, not trying to fix. And then give reassurance, whether that's it's universalizing, mm-hmm. it's a part of the human condition. You're not necessarily mm-hmm. trying to fix, but you're just trying to reassure that you're there, if anything. Mm-hmm. Look at it as trying to help them see that you've got their back. And, and then after that, you've got the two E's, encourage, whether that's encouraging them get help, mm-hmm going with them to a counselor, going with them, you know, can I call somebody for you? You know, mm-hmm. can, can I get you in touch with someone that can really, you know, help you out? And then the second E is encourage self-help advocacy, but that's a little further on down the road. Right. A lot of times it's just encouraging someone to get that next step. Cause we feel, I think part of the reason why we have such a hard time and Anna, I don't know how you feel, even taking that first step, the A mm. in algae, Mm-hmm. is we feel like we have to fix it we have to make it right we have mm-hmm. to you know make it perfect but it, no 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 no. it's just we if anything we just maybe we're there mm-hmm. to give someone support and help them get help mm-hmm. so that's kind of the big thing is being listening and being a triage and that's so good too because it it, it feels like a process you know and we live in a society of not processes but like instant oh yeah mm-hmm. um, give grat- me the pill for that give me the pill for that you yeah. know and so it's it's like the, the fact that it recognizes it's not this like like in 20 minutes we can go through the algae 
and then we'll all be like kumbaya at the end. You know what I mean? But yeah. but, but it, it, it's a, a sense of, and you said the word compassion. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I think, and this is probably wrong, but I think the root word for compassion is also the, is to like to suffer with. Mm-hmm. Like they kind of mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's kind of what, what, what that allows that interaction mm-hmm. to do is like someone to suffer with, someone to help them get them on the path to where they're not isolated uh, yeah. like as much. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and helping them tell their story, we don't, and I love people saying, you know, they'll come in my office and be like, Dave, why should I talk about it? What, what you know, what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I, I, I'll tell them, look, to be honest with you, I'm not sure why you should talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, what, what do you, I don't, but I'll, I'm setting them up. I'm like, well, but the research shows <laughs> talking about it helps. No, the research, the research yeah. shows talking about your problems helps. We don't know how it helps. It's like all of our other therapy techniques. We're not sure why CBT or these other things work. We just know they work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so talking about your problems help, or Anne and I both would be out of a job. <laughs> Something right. about that confession of self. Right. right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, hmm. With it's, ideally a compassionate other. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. I've found that it's, um, real easy to lie to yourself mm. but when you have to say it out loud to mm. somebody else when you have to say it out loud to somebody else mm. man it becomes a little bit harder to lie and it's that's a wonderful thing um just talking about oh i'm not doing well today right may help and I, I know for a fact that it has helped me. I've worked with people. I've been fortunate enough in my career to have a handful of people who I can say that to and be like, today's not a good day. Hmm. And just the statement of the fact mm-hmm. helps. Um, because if you feel that you can be honest about that, especially at work, um, you may still have to perform the same as you always would. Right. But being able to say, I'm not okay, can help you be better in a way. Yeah. Um, and even if it doesn't, just acknowledging the fact that you're not okay. Right, you're breaking down that wall just a little bit. Right, mm-hmm. and it, I think that that is a very difficult thing. So you're talking about uh, encouraging people to get help, and um, I have a couple things to say about that. First of all, not a lot of people can, which is really, really right. can't afford it. R- right. right, like mm-hmm. we work in, I work in restaurants. <clears throat> I don't get insurance. Right, yeah. like mm-hmm. I can't afford to see a therapist. And that's a lot of people. Yeah. And then what happens is, not all the time, but personally and a lot of people I know turn to substances. Right. So, and that's something I really wanted to talk to you guys about today because I feel like that is a huge part of my story. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge part of a lot of people that I know um, that have done the, the industry job for a long time is... A lot, a lot of mm-hmm. alcohol. I mean, just, just <clears throat> so much alcohol. On top of heavy marijuana use, heavy cocaine use. I've, I'm, have met meth addicts, heroin addicts. Um, 
I mean, pretty much anything that you, you've ever come across, I've seen those mm-hmm. people at work and I've mm-hmm. worked side by side with them. And I find that looking back over the course of my career, a lot of that probably could have been helped. Right. If mm-hmm. those people could find a way to self triage mm-hmm. or we had a better community of people that lifted each other up instead of just pushing each other forward. Um, But you can't fix the past. So we going forward, what advice uh, really do you have for us now where we're at, where we, most of us cannot afford to actually get professional help. A lot of us have already turned to substances. Um, and we are coping in unhealthy ways with not a lot of real support behind us. Um, mm-hmm. Especially, uh, working in restaurants especially, uh, we collect the weird and the broken. Um, <laughs> I would say the service industry in general collects, yeah, people. Yeah. I, I don't know about weird and broken, but you know, people who often don't have a lot of the safety nets necessary, mm-hmm. things that they're missing. We're a little weird. Like service, like, like it's okay. We're like it's fine. Yeah, well, it's okay to be a little weird. And, and, and Ben, to your first point about getting service, I think that's where it's on. Part of this is on us in the mental health field, and this is where I would challenge my um, my peers Absolutely. and my coworkers mm-hmm. to be more inclusive in in that working more on sliding scales yes. like we do here. Mm-hmm. Um, that we need to make we need to get in. Anna, you and I were talking after the first podcast. How can in same you were there too, Jack. How can we get in, whether it's seminars, whether it's going right. in and talking to restaurants, what can right. we do to get more into the industry? And because we in the mental right. health industry have realized we haven't always been the most inclusive. And we've realized that racially, ethnically, oh, yeah. gender, sexual identity. And now we're, you know, I'm finding out through this process how much of a big need is in the service industry oh. and how what we can do now, how do we get more mm-hmm. inclusive with the service industry? How do right. we be more flexible? to get people because there are resources granted they're limited uh, you know there, there, there are community mental health there are sliding scale but it's like we as also uh, professionals in private practice mm-hmm. there's more we can do mm-hmm. to touch people and to you know, get right. groups together to right. visit these restaurants to give skills to give ideas resources so I, I think Ben if anything you're talking about the need that we something on us in the mental health industry to be more aware of and I know you're talking about what do we do right now. I'm just saying, but I'm issuing no. a challenge to the industry as a whole, the mental health industry. No, and I appreciate that because it it seems like uh, I'm not sure if any of you have ever read, but I'm sure some of the listeners will have read uh, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Mm-hmm. It tells the story of old school kitchens. Mental health wasn't really a thing back then, and in a lot of ways, they were pushing through some insurmountable odds Mm -hmm. um, and just killing themselves over it all in the name of being the kings of their own little world. Fame and glory in the restaurant world. Fame and glory. And that is still surviving today in the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. It is 
not as profound, I don't think, and at least here in in my world, um, I'm sure it still exists in a lot of places, but right. um, it's still very much alive. That idea of this is my little kingdom, and I want right. fame and glory in my little kingdom, and we do a lot of things that do not help our mental health right. because of that. We put things by the wayside and we don't get sleep and we don't eat and we do drugs and we then at the end of the week wonder why we all just feel like shit and we wonder why there are random cuts on our arms and we Mm -hmm. wonder why Mm -hmm. that person had to go to rehab and that person had to quit because they couldn't handle it and we wonder why I had to sleep in the freaking bathtub last night running cold water over myself because I did so much cocaine mm. that I literally thought I was going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean when I, t- when I talk about what can we do right now. Right. Yeah. I think you ask a great question, and I think there's a... I, I've been kind of introduced to this terminology that's been so helpful for me, this idea of like proximate cause versus ultimate cause. And a great analogy for this is like, you walk into a room that's hot, well, just turn on a fan, you know, that'll help. But what, it, and, and that's kind of the proximate cause, get some cool air in there and that'll help a lot. The ultimate cause, however, is probably that the thermostat's set too high and you need to lower that. Yeah. <laughs> that's the ultimate cause. Same thing I think with substance abuse. What's the proximate cause? I drink too much, I use too many drugs, just stop doing that. You're not getting to the ultimate cause. Mm-hmm. All that's going to happen is you're just going to kind of continue to overcome that because you're not dealing with the thermostat being set too high. You're not dealing with the pressures being too intense in so many ways and you not having the appropriate coping skills. And so I think when we talk about what needs to happen right now, I think people who are dealing with those substance issues need to kind of take a step back and say, what are my unique ultimate causes? And we can probably predict some of them. Lack of social support, overstress, um, kind of socially mediated acceptance of substance abuse. All of those things are sort of the, the typical ultimate causes of a substance problem. And so I think kind of working with the people around you to say like, okay, it's gonna be different for every person. What are the ultimate causes of why you're turning to substances instead of something healthier? Um, And obviously what that kind of implies is that it's a longer journey, right? It's a longer journey to getting through that, getting past that. That's why the AA model is you're always recovering. Um, And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, These ultimate causes are deeply rooted. They're not just about, you know, set down that beer, set down that joint, set down that fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. It's about dealing with these longer term ultimate things that have been deeply rooted into you. In knowing too that it's highly stigmatized. I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. about something that is trying to cope with pain and suffering a lot of mm-hmm. times, trauma, mm-hmm. hurt, but then you're also breaking the law, which is just freaking insane to me to think that we're gonna we're gonna you know put legal ramifications on what is ultimately we're saying is a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just so knowing too, they, this is a highly stigmatized thing. So I think I love what you're saying, Anna. I think mm-hmm. banding together, social supports, mm-hmm. supporting people, uh, finding what the root root mm-hmm. causes. There's resources out there like Red Rock Behavioral Health, North Care, Sunbeam that are income-based that can be mm-hmm. free depending mm-hmm. on what someone's income, income level is. And there's other agencies out there as well. But um, I think stepping up, having that conversation, mm-hmm. I think showing them that they have support systems, and which is a difficult, I'm making it sound easy, that's a difficult conversation. Like you, you were mentioning mm-hmm. earlier, Ben, that's a difficult conversation. 
to have. But you know, banding together, showing that healthy support, the, the two things that I, I see, this is my own compartmentalized view of the world, man. Uh, people tell me when they're battling with relapse, it's a lack of social supports and their board are the two things that people usually tell me. Right. And, you know, I think the board, I mean, you can almost kind of lump into the social support and mm -hmm. that experiential avoidance piece. And yep. so do you have good, healthy social supports? Because mm -hmm. I see a lot of people going back into it, and I, I borrow a term that a client told me a while ago. They called them drug buddies, you know, going mm -hmm. back to the drug. Because, man, substance use, it's about coping, but it is. You, you do get a social network mm -hmm. uh, with that as well. And so you're saying, what do I do? Help, if someone's struggling, try to get them healthy, healthy people, healthy relationships, healthy supports. Trying to find maybe if, if they don't have a lot of money, those income-based supports. Us in the mental health industry need to get better. And I also hope, mm -hmm. I would love to see the higher ups in, in, in the service industry reaching out to us and saying, can you come talk to our folks? Can you give right. resources? Right. You know, even if it's us just coming out for an hour, hour and a half to speak to mm -hmm. an entire group to say, here are resources, right. here's what you can do. I think you almost need this marriage between the two because um, other industries reach out to us in the mental health world. I, mean, I was, I was oh, just speaking sure. at a conference last week uh, for youth leadership. Schools do it. Yeah. I would love to see those in the service industry. And I think us in the mental, I, I know personally, I do these things for free. Like, I'd be glad to go talk to a group mm -hmm. of people for free. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially learning how big of a gap there is. And mm -hmm. so we can do more, but I think the higher ups in the service industry exactly. can do more to say, we've got problems, we've got issues. These are people working for us, not just replaceable cogs, which is kind of, man, I don't know, I'm not there, but I kind of hear that in some instances, it's that replaceable mm -hmm. cog kind of. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think that is always the case, but I know that it is a very big, I mean, the phrase that gets thrown around in every restaurant that I've ever worked is always, well, everybody's replaceable. And while That's that is, heart. that is true <laughs> in the work sense, yeah. People become commodities. Yeah. Well, oh, you're a number on a spreadsheet for oh, sure. Yeah. Kind of, de it's a dehumanizing experience. Yeah. Oh, I, I was sure. read my mind. Yeah. I was going to say, what can we do now? Let's humanize. Right. Yeah, let's well, <laughs> like humanize service industry. Which yeah, is like humanize right. service industry. It's it's funny that like the most like social like industry is the mm -hmm. most like closed <laughs> off and isolated industry. You know? That is funny. And it doesn't recognize any of the uh -huh. like nuance of human. Exactly. Or of the nuances of being human, I guess, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and that goes back to what uh, you were saying earlier is that we we aren't allowed to have a bad day. Hmm. And we end up being viewed by society as almost robots. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you are supposed to be yeah, perfect at your job all the time, irrelevant to what's mm -hmm. going on in your life, irrelevant mm -hmm. to what's going on in your shift, really irrelevant to what's going on at all. And we, uh, hmm. man, you spend enough time in that, bring it back around to depression you spend enough time living like that and you're not human anymore right you are you are just a body right that moves around and does a job and when you i think one of the biggest things for me personally 
is remembering that I'm a person and that the people around me are people. And thankfully, I, I work in the kitchen. I don't have to mm. talk to customers. Yeah. <laughs> I love it because right. I, get, I get to work with a bunch of great people and we support each other very heavily. I can't tell you how many times. Doc, if you listen, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> I've had to call this guy and crying. Yeah, and he's come over to my house, you know, and I, I get that we we've got a we've got that where I work right now, but I haven't always had that, and so I can speak to just this idea that you're very much alone, and nobody cares, and your bosses don't care, the customers don't give a fuck, yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, you spend enough time in that mentality, and I'm sorry, but you start to believe it. I, I had a conversation with my mother uh, several years ago, and I was like, man, working in restaurants long enough, and you're you're just a shell, mm-hmm. you know? And you don't get to have a personality anymore because your personality changes based on where you work and who you work with. And, mm-hmm. and what's required of you in the moment. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and the people who fight against that are the people who don't make it. Right. Which is stupid. The people who want to have a life outside of work, the people who want to um, be real people are the ones who get ostracized. They're the ones right. who don't get promotions because they don't have everything invested in their company. And for some reason, the stigma around that is that those people are failing. Why are those people failing? Those are the people who are doing it right. Mm -hmm. But the people like me who decided, hey, I'm going to give everything I got to this company. Everything. Well, I'm the one that gets looked at, right? But that's not healthy. Because I'm up here, I'm fucked up in the head. Right. But, I say right. Yes, you are. (laughs) But I think too, like, don't you think we're in this moment now where like service industry people are sort of voting with their feet? Um, I don't know when people are listening to this, but in this moment, we're experiencing a huge shortage in service industry employees. I think because we're just coming out of the pandemic, people saved their stimulus checks, lived with their parents, you know, stopped Mm -hmm. going out. And, you know, these service industry people that got laid off back in March, April of 2020 are like, why would I go back? Why would I go back? Why? What what would draw me back? It breaks my heart that the stigma is, oh, people are lazy. They're showing at work. Well, no. Because that's the narrative that's being driven. It It is. And and even like people are coming into the shop and Mm -hmm. and they're saying like, well, you know, like they're keep passing out these checks. They keep passing out these checks. But I've yet to meet personally meet somebody in the service industry who is taking a check and not working. Right. Like like, I don't know. I I think in Oklahoma, most of them, I think, went to weed. Right. Because weed's paying 18 to 20 dollars an hour and they don't have to deal with the public. Exactly. And and I that, that's the question I want to ask. I want to be like, well, wouldn't like the basic like demands of capitalism cause you to ask, ask like every other industry is doing fine. Mm-hmm. The service industry is hurting for employees. Yeah. Could that be because nobody wants to work in the service exactly. industry? Yeah. Look in the mirror. That, that's yeah. what I say. I say, look in the mirror. I right. mean, the, the, the problem is not with the folks not wanting to work. It's with the system. It's you with know, the it's, system. You're not pay, right. paying people living wages. You're exactly. Not, you're not supporting their health, their mental health. You're not offering you're not them benefits. insurance. Yeah. yeah. Like, you're not getting EAP programs. Exactly. It feels obvious to me, but, you know. I All th- of that is expensive. Yeah. Right. 
Right. I mean, if we're being honest, yeah. it, it, as someone who's been, you know, fairly high at the top of the food chain in the service industry before, that that stuff is expensive. Mm-hmm. And that with profit margins, right. I mean, I worked, I worked sure. for a restaurant and our profit margin was roughly 10% wow. of our mm-hmm. sales. So that leaves, that's, and that's the pure profit margin after everything's paid for, but that's not a lot. Right. So you, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the biggest issues is that the industry is actually designed to, ooh, I'm, I get in trouble for saying this, but it's designed Do to it. exploit people. Yeah. Um, and I would put more of the blame on the public than the people who run the industry because mm. the people who run the industry are responding. Mm. It is a very That's responsive, and at least yeah. in restaurants. Yeah. I can't say that all... Indi- Hair is very yeah. much similar to that. Yeah, like mm-hmm. we are just responding to the to to the demands of customers, right? Right. It's, yeah. it's very, they don't want to yeah. spend more than $12, $12 for a dish. Right. You know? Exactly. And it, so there you have it. It's very capitalistic. And right. so when the customers decide to stop paying for your food because mm. you're, the, you're the restaurant that decided to support their employees and decided to pay everybody a living wage. So you had to raise your prices. Well, people don't want to eat there anymore. Well, then all those people just got let go. And so the system as a whole, and there are individual pockets that are good. Um, And I I will say that. I I like where I work now, and I have been lucky to work for a handful of restaurants in the past that really did try and take care of them, their employees. Mm -hmm. But as a whole especially with servers they get paid nothing they are surviving on the public the public is shitty and i'm sorry because like i don't like saying that but i'm a cook so Mm -hmm. fuck all 'all. (laughs) y'all y'all are y'all suck you you, you suck and you're, you're mean to your servers you don't tip very well and then you wonder why this whole industry is you know, down and out and yeah. Right. No, it's true. It's set up to fail is, is right. I think my biggest issue. And because of that, we come into work every day mm-hmm. knowing even those of us who haven't said it out loud, I think we all really know to some degree that it's working against us. Right. And we are collectively fighting the battle, but that's the, I love the, the idea of drug friends. We're all drug friends, mm. <laughs> but the drug ain't drugs. Mm. The drug is work. Mm. The drug is the suffering. Hey, I'll show you my scars. You show me yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and that's, that's how, t- a, how tough are you? Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, my, how hard do you work? My yeah. stories yeah. that I tell other coworkers mm. are not, oh, hey, I went and did this this one time. Yeah. No, it's, hey, I got at work. I got to work at 5 a.m. I didn't leave till midnight. Mm. Yeah. Hey, right. this one time, I worked. Yeah, it's a badge, it's a badge of, of honor. honor. Right. I clocked out one time. I was helping open this restaurant. I clocked out with 100 hours that week. Woo-hoo. And I go around saying that's something I should be proud of. Right. Mm. But that's what we do. That's our. We suffer together. We are a team. Right. We are the mm-hmm. the league. And I'll, yeah, I'll, I, 
I work with a, 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 hand, a couple of guys uh, who've served in the military, and it's funny to listen to them talk because that's how I feel about the service industry. You're kind of this band of brothers, and we don't go through anything near what the military goes through. I'm not even close. But the mentality, I think, is a little bit similar mm-hmm. in this idea that everything's and we're just going to push through. Right. And at the end of the day, what that does to you, you mentally, I think, is really, really dangerous mm-hmm. because it feels like friendship and it feels like community, but... <laughs> those people aren't necessarily your friends outside of work and they're not necessarily your support system off the clock and so it's actually sometimes extremely isolating Mm -hmm. because you clock in and you're shoulder to shoulder with the next guy and then you clock out and And all of a sudden yeah Mm -hmm. your entire support system the entire thing that got you through that day suddenly isn't there anymore and where do we turn then and where do we where do we go right i i can't speak for everyone i turned to alcohol mm-hmm. i turned to the bar mm-hmm. because that was somewhere i could go every day mm-hmm. and see the same people have the same conversation get that same feeling of community that right. that lights your brain up yeah. and then go home feeling like I had friends when even at the bar that's not always true and because as soon as you leave the bar it's the same thing as clocking out right. oh see you around tomorrow they're your they're your bar friends versus your real friends exactly yeah. mm-hmm. so what are real friends I think is really a big issue and, huh. and what we're talking about next episode yeah. by the way folks well and, and that, that you're saying what do I do now it just uh, I'm hearing and it, we we're talking about humanizing the service industry but being a good human to myself and just being a good human to my compadre, here, the person I'm working mm-hmm. with, and my colleague, and being their friend outside of work, if that's possible, I, I, I don't know, but being, you know, being a social support in and outside of work, so I'm hearing this almost Stockholmish like kind of thing of kind of identifying with our captor in the suffering, and it's like sometimes, you know, I, I look at things like, you talked about the military, I look at something like Abu Ghraib, and it's like, man, needed somebody to step up and mm-hmm. just break the cycle, you know, mm-hmm. and it's hard, I, I'm making it sound much easier than what it is, but it's almost like, stepping up for each other and we, okay right. we can really support each other as we work it's funny you, you, i had a buddy telling me the other day he worked like almost 72 hours straight at an ihop uh, when he was in college and just someone said like look you know being a good human knock it off you know yeah. take yeah. a step back yeah. for each other though and, right. and that's going to be that so if we can be so good with, for each other collectively here what if we could be right here because I saw something similar at the, like when I was working in community mental health of just how many people, how many clients can you churn and burn? Can you? I did nine today. Oh, I did ten. Right. And it's like, well, no. It, it finally it took someone really pulling me aside. You know, mm-hmm. they they wrote a poem about my lack of self care. You know, to kind of make fun of me, but to call <laughs> yeah. me out. They're like, basically, you need to knock this shit off. Yeah. And so it's it's like, yeah, I don't. You know, maybe if I found more self value in being a good human and in myself than what. I'm producing because I think that's another thing we get caught right. up in is these external conditions of work and it's like right. well, mm-hmm. am I finding and it's work so reinforced me? oh yeah you know mm-hmm. absolutely I think that's what's so sick is that like somehow I think what can happen in the service industry is like your like social connection provides reinforcement for overwork mm-hmm. and so it's like man how do you break out of that when your only friends or your boss who's like a mentor your manager is telling you like I love you if you work this extra shift, yeah. you know. Man. Oh, I had somebody say that 
yesterday. No, two days ago. <laughs> somebody said, I love you to somebody else. And one of the guys that I work with, um, he said, man, sounds like a lot of conditional love around here. And I turned to him. <laughs> I am a little upset that I said this. But he, I said, yeah, that's the job. Oh. And oh. I, it, during this conversation, I don't like that that was my first thought. But that is true. So it's yeah. reinforced, huh? Yeah. yeah. I had a conversation with a girl who works for me, and she's kind of helping me kind of manage stuff, you know. And she does, like, little, like just kind of random things around the shop. And I had a conversation. I had convinced myself that's like, I, I want I expect more from her. I expect more from her. Uh -huh. And her response to me was, she goes, I think I'm killing it. <laughs> and, 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 and I had this like deep moment of like self-reflection of like, oh my gosh, I've, I'm the one sitting here calling her to do more. Yeah. You know what I mean? When yeah. it's like, no, she, she works plenty. You know what I mean? Like she does really good at what she does, you know? Yeah. And so like, it, it, it is this I'm weird cultural it. thing yeah. that like. And, and, right. and, and I had to be like, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll quit picking on you. <laughs> well, and I think people get looked at. I'm a server or uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm in the service. It's mm -hmm. like, no, I'm a human being in the right. public. Oh, that's my server. That's no, we need to get out of that narrative and that terminology. That's a human being right. yeah. who is who is helping you out. Who is So, yeah. And I think it sounds like in the service industry, looking at each other that way. But, of course, yeah. the public looks at you that way as well mm -hmm. so it's getting out right. of that culture of identifying who you right. are with what you do yeah oh, i'm actually flashing back to this memory i so i was a server at one point through grad school it was you know i was very lucky in that i worked in a good restaurant and it was like part-time you know all of the mm -hmm. above but i remember very much being impressed by like how mean the public could be and i remember years later i, I was sitting down in this restaurant and i told this server you know, not that she was doing a good job, not that I understood, you know, how hard it was, but just that I valued her as a person and she started crying. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. like, oh. <laughs> that, that, yeah, no, serious. Yeah. Oh, shit, I didn't mean for that to happen. <laughs> yeah. oh, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Because I, I, oh. scary. That's very, it's very rare for somebody mm -hmm. to come forward and be like, hey, you're a cool person. Like, right. I value you as a human being. Right. So rare. I can't. Right. It doesn't surprise me at all that somebody broke down at that. Yeah. I, I think I she was the in the weeds, too. So I, I totally. kind of acknowledge that. And I was like, right. just so you know, you're more than your performance right now. And well, that was yeah. not the moment to say that. But And again, man, to go back to your question, what can we do right now? It's it's finding those internal, intrinsic ideas of worth mm -hmm. and getting at which, man, we are, we are coached on conditions of worth. Think of school. A, B, huh. C, D. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. getting out of that. I right. am what I do and more into I am, I'm a human being, damn it, right. first and foremost. Mm -hmm. right. I might do some great things, I might do some shitty things, but I'm a human being first and foremost. So it's finding those own in, internal mm -hmm. reasons that you're worth something outside of what other people might want to say and do because we are so coached on these conditions of work. And I'm guessing, man, service industry especially. You mm. know, right. I'm guessing the conditions of worth are huge from the customer to the bosses. It's, I mean, it really becomes a lot of how much can you get done? Mm -hmm. How many tables can you take at one time? How mm -hmm. much food can you pump out of the kitchen at one time? How much, how much, how much, how much, how much? What do the numbers look like at the end of the day? I don't give a shit about what you had to deal with. I don't care mm -hmm. how busy it was. I don't care mm -hmm. what kind of mental state you're in. How much money did you make your boss? Right. And that's not service industry specific. That sure. is American culture. <laughs> you got That's that right. Like, yeah. But it's capitalism in a nutshell. Yeah. 
but that is also very much a part of the service industry and the dehumanizing that happens from the public just adds to that um that sense of lack of self um and eventually it just it brings you down 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 and we push through but for how long Right. really you exactly. know exactly and i you know i've have watched people almost die because their depression led them to drug overdoses and right. i have Self-harm, I, I have almost done the same myself a couple times and mm-hmm. that can be really scary but then who do you talk to and you're talking about normalizing no, yeah. normalizing mm-hmm. humanity I think is very important um, because when you feel like you don't matter then who gives a flying fuck anyway right, right? Exactly. about whether or not you live or die or whether or not mm-hmm. you're there one day or the mm-hmm. next and the fact that we can go from job to job and our last job doesn't remember our name in two weeks is just that's that's again that's not really service industry specific that's american society and we just live in this world where who i am as a person Mm -hmm. is often irrelevant and uh damn um no that's 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 tough stuff and I think that as we scope out a little bit from this process that we're in with this podcast I think what we're realizing or at least I am is that yeah it's about the service industry and the the mental health needs there but also I think on a deeper level it's much more about like coming back to some sense of humanity whether that's pushing through anxiety or depression like reworking how we think of health and relationships I think all of that is about setting aside these demands that have been put on us to not be fully human you know to be something other to be compartmentalized it's like Mm -hmm. what is calling us to to be fully human and it seems like the framework is currently really limiting yes you know and and, and it's like we're all frustrated and it's Mm -hmm. it's coming out in ways of like depression anxiety you know drug abuse things like Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. but like the the thing that we're functioning in is just it's just framework of like right. it, feel, it feels brutal it yeah. does and, and we're really probably one of the biggest things I work on with folks because I know it's been one of my biggest struggles is self-compassion and mm-hmm. yes. self-care self-compassion because we are in this rat race of trying to well what I say is we, we look we look for in others mostly what we're not giving ourselves approval yeah. mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. belonging mm-hmm and so we get stuck in this rat race, man. We don't like ourselves. So we're trying to get other people to like us, yep. but it kind of works and then it doesn't. And then we hate mm-hmm. ourselves even more and we're just lacking the self-compassion to give a shit about ourselves. Yeah. Right. And so I'm hoping like, you know, like where you're talking about, maybe we can swing the pendulum back the other way. Mm-hmm. Yes. But society, man, I mean, you look at what happened, you know, 2016 and 2020 and, and just all this, and it's not just political. I mean, the political is just, it's, it's kind of just mm-hmm. a grander, demonstration what's going on in society now and how people just can't disagree anymore that's Mm -hmm. the symptom not the cause yeah and so we're trying to join these groups and it's just this constant rat race and we're Mm -hmm. just not taking care of ourselves Mm -hmm. right we have we don't have good boundaries so you sorry that's that is a really important word 
boundaries. Um, Don't you think those are illegal in the service industry? That's what I've heard. They feel like it. Yes. I was about to say, I can't imagine. Boundaries are probably not, they're they're probably like, you know, punished. I know. Yes. Because like I was saying earlier, the guy who's got boundaries, he don't get promoted. Yeah. And the guy who's got boundaries who says, no, I'm only working 40 to 45 hours a week. Mm. Right. He's not going to go very far. Right. Because that's not what the service industry needs, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. It needs the Mm -hmm. 60 hour a week, 70 hour a week people. It doesn't need it. They don't. But that's how they act. But the bound. Isn't there like a language about that too? Like to go the extra mile or be the team player? Like all of that means, you know, set aside your own boundaries. Very much so. It's who. I mean, it's just, it's going back to the thing we've been saying all day is, is dehumanizing yourself right. to the point where you don't care if you have to go the extra mile. If you right. get called up to come in on your day off or, right. hey, we need, right. we're short staffed, so we need you to work a bunch of hours this week. And mm-hmm. oh, yeah, man, that's just, it, it's just part of what we do. We accept that. But we shouldn't because we should have boundaries, and we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can't say that. I don't. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do, but mm-hmm. a lot of us don't. Yeah. Right. No, it's true. So you had mentioned kind of Red Rock, Sunbeam, mm-hmm. and a few others earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, name those again, and then also I want you guys to go ahead and plug Woven again. Sure. And then how people can access Woven. Absolutely. Um, and the, the, the sliding scale option. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like. Mm-hmm maybe describe that a little bit and then that I think that might be a good time to you know get, get kind of wrap up as well okay so uh, at the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services if you go to their website they'll have a list of mental health agencies okay. but some of the the larger ones are Red Rock Behavioral Health uh, up on the north east side mm-hmm. and they've also got offices in, in, in other parts of Oklahoma you've got uh, North Care you've got Hope mm-hmm. you've got uh, Sunbeam Family Services for substance use in particular, you've got SOS and right. Catalyst. Uh, Catalyst, yep. Um, mm-hmm. And then a lot of places too, those are agencies. Mm-hmm. A lot of places like myself, uh, and I think you said the same, even right. though I'm in private practice, I'll do sliding scale. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'll be honest, and again, this is a challenge to my, my colleagues here, rates are getting really high mm-hmm. for counselors mm-hmm. in private practice. Yeah. Very inflated. Too high, yeah. very inflated. And, 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 and I'll be even asked questions about my rate, and they're like, your rate's pretty low, Dave. It's mm-hmm. kind of below everyone else. What's wrong with you? I'm yeah. like, nothing wrong with me. Just we need to get people right. need to get help, man. Right. right. And so um, ask if you call a counselor, say, I don't have insurance, ask about sliding scale. You know? yep. mm-hmm. Ask about, hey, can we set up like four sessions for a certain you know, mm-hmm. yeah. discount or Group something. rates kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Try, try, yeah. Negotiate with the, and the counselor says no, then, you know, okay, screw them. Because the, the, they're probably not the counselor you want. They're probably not the counselor <laughs> yeah. you want. Yeah. Yeah. You exactly. want someone that, that wants, that wants, wants to get you in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, look around at these different agencies, community mm-hmm. mental health centers, go to the department of mental mm-hmm. health and substance abuse services website. Um, and then, um, and I'll let you, Oh yes, yes. If you, if you um, have any other recommendations? No, I think those those are all great recommendations. One thing I would add too is that I think what I see is that people will hear from a counselor like, "Yeah, I have a sliding scale, but I'm full right now." Go back and check with them again in four weeks. You know, our our caseloads kind of fluctuate quite a bit, so be persistent. Um, 
And then secondly, I was going to say too, where David and I work, Woven Integrated Health here in Oklahoma City in the Plaza District, um, everyone here, all six of our psychotherapists work on a sliding scale. Um, that's really important to us. We're very invested in the community. We do um, also yoga therapy here out of our building. Um, so one thing that we talk about all the time, I was just talking about it with a client last week, is that talking is incredibly important, but if we're not moving your body in ways that are useful, if we're not um, kind of embodying some of this work, then it only goes so far. And so um, we also offer yoga therapy at a discount as well. And so you can check us out at uh, wovenokc.com. Um, that has all of the therapist bios as well as our yoga therapist. So definitely check us out. Excellent. So mm -hmm. cool. Well, uh, I think that was a great conversation. Ben, I want to say th thanks again. Thank for, you, for, for Ben. Coming Thank in and kind show. of Thank you for it having for me. Us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it was, for the uh, low, low cost of Topo Chico and coffee. <laughs> <Right>. I'll take <laughs> it. <laughs> Excellent. So cool. That feels good. Cool. All right.